Welcome to the Diabetes Primetime Podcast, where we talk to diabetes experts about how to live a long, healthy life with diabetes. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at www.diabeteswhattoknow.com or just search Diabetes What to Know on Facebook. We're always posting new articles, videos, and tools that make living a healthy life easier. Emotional eating is a challenge for so many of us. Tonight, we're privileged to get to speak with psychologist Anne Goebel-Fabry about strategies that anyone can use to heal our relationship with food and why that's so important for people with diabetes. Anne, it's such a privilege to get to speak with you tonight. We hear from so many people with diabetes that emotional eating or binging is a challenge for them, and you bring such a wonderful perspective to this issue. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking about hunger. We've heard from psychologists that they consider that there are kind of a few different types of hunger. Stomach hunger, which is real, genuine physiological hunger. Mouth hunger, which kind of means cravings. And then heart hunger, you know, when we want to eat because we're feeling sad, anxious, or stressed. How do you recommend people start thinking about which type of hunger they're experiencing and what's driving them to food? Well, I think the first question that I try to get people to to think about um, is to ask themselves, what is it that I'm hungry for? And if that is something very, very specific, then it's probably a craving. Because if you're just sort of physically hungry, any calorie will do. It's all, it's all, it's all going to help, you know. But um, if it's very specific, and and sometimes if it's specific, there's also an emotional tie to it. So there might be. Um, certain uh, warm and loving memories that people have of a particular type of meal or a particular type of baked good or you name it, and um, that then get connected with soothing themselves when they're, when they're having um, emotional difficulty. And, but sometimes we're actually not even hungry for food. Sometimes the hunger is um, more emotional. The person might be lonely, person might be tired, person might be bored person might be angry. And then food is really not the solution in those situations. So figuring out other ways we can soothe those feelings that don't involve food is really the key is what it sounds like. Exactly. And let's, let's start by talking about heart hunger, eating something because we're feeling maybe something difficult or painful. Why do so many of us reach for food when we're feeling sad or lonely? There is a lot of speculation on that. And I'm not sure that there's one you know, fully established answer. There's, um, it, it runs the gamut, I think, from habit and sort of childhood teaching. Oh, you had a bad day. Here, come in, I'll give you a cookie. To um, even the, that there are neurochemical changes that happen in our brains when we eat certain foods. Carbohydrate in particular is related to the production of serotonin, which is an anti-anxiety, anti-depression neurochemical. So it really runs a, a full gamut of um, theories at this point. So folks, I've talked about the diabetes primetime phone number and, and re we received a question from Sarah on our voicemail last week. Yeah. She said, I know I eat emotionally and I don't want to do it, but I can't figure out how not to. So, so you've just told us, Anne, we're not exactly sure why we do it, um, but it's almost like we really don't need to know to try to figure out how do we make different choices. So, so what would you say to Sarah? 
Well, again, I think the first question is, what is the emotional trigger? Because we also eat, for example, when we're celebrating, like, hey, you know, job well done. I deserve a fill in the blank chocolate sundae or something like that. So it's, there's both positive and negative emotions that, that we connect with our eating behavior. Ultimately, food is supposed to be pleasurable. And it's supposed to be, eating is supposed to be a sensual, you know, shared experience socially. And it's connected to loving attachments that we've had and, and things like that. So, so I think stepping back and thinking about, okay, what is the actual emotion that's driving this right now? And how do I resolve that? Because the emotion doesn't, like, like if I'm lonely, I had a patient once, this broke my heart, but I thought it was so perfect in terms of describing this. He said to me, growing up, he had been a larger kid and he had been bullied. And even as an adult, he still felt sort of out of step with his peers and, and with his um, friends sometimes. And he said, food has always been my best hug. Oh, wow. Uh, and it just killed me because it can't do that really. You know, it's such an approximation if we think about it truly, like stepping back and looking at what it actually is. Oh gosh, that is so heartbreaking. But but the truth is, I do think, and you said it earlier. You know, um, oh, you feel bad. Let me give you a cookie. I think we have been soothed with food, definitely, teenagers, and it sort of makes sense that that's kind of the first way we know how to soothe ourselves as adults. Okay, so you've told us ask yourself what's the emotion that's coming up that we want to address. So we might take a different approach for sadness, for example, as opposed to something like anger. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you recommend that people kind of think about it and then think about strategies for different emotions? Oh, absolutely. What is like, again, that's sort of like that. It's like a cheesy little question of what am I actually hungry for? But if I'm really hungry for companionship, for example, or if I'm really hungry for relaxation, then meditation would be a really good tool to try for the first time or yoga. Or if I'm, you know, missing people, then calling people or being with people, that's going to be a much more satisfying way of dealing with that emotion. So for someone like Sarah, who's saying like, I know I do it. I just don't know how to stop. What I'm hearing you say is step one is kind of figure out what what emotion you want the what's food. the context yeah right. what's the context? What's the, and then two what might you do instead of eating that might address those feelings yeah and i'm thinking you probably work with your clients to think through strategies that have worked in the past how do you recommend someone come up with that list of strategies well so what is the feeling that you're actually trying to achieve is another thing right so i'm trying to achieve feeling soothed. Well, what does soothed really mean? I'm I'm anxious and I'm trying to relax. Mm -hmm. Okay. What are some of the things that help you to relax? Are you a person who enjoys taking a long bath or taking a long walk? Or are you a person who where listening to a certain kind of music would feel really good? Or, And it's helpful to think about multiple senses because if you think about food also it's a very sensory experience it's not just visual it's taste it's smell it's it's also like um you know crunch and texture and all of these various things that are that involve all of our senses and so to really think about how do i use other senses to help me achieve something that i'm trying to feel differently about 
Okay, so so let's take the example because I think so many of us um, do associate food with loneliness. We're feeling alone, you know. We're feeling sad. In that context, maybe we call someone. Can self compassion play a role here? Can can talking to ourselves the way we would wish someone would talk to us might that be something that you would recommend? I think that's an excellent concept, and I think that's for some people that's the way that they utilize journaling. That they'll you know, you're really having a dialogue with yourself and that can be verbal, outwardly verbal, or it can be on paper. Um, It can be, you know, reminding you of that there have been better times, that you know this passes. I mean, because people who emotionally eat, they know that they've had these feelings before Mm -hmm. and they don't, they're not endless. Right. So they have gone away at certain times and to try to really analyze how to convince themselves to try a different way of getting there. I, I think they're just a reminder, this feeling will pass. When you're in it, it feels like, I'm going to feel this way forever. It's a horrible... Oh, yeah. And even just like cut the emotion out of it, just having a food craving feels like it's never going to end too. So that's this idea that actually there's an idea that comes out of the substance abuse literature called urge surfing. So the notion that an urge or in this case, a food craving is going to be a wave and you can get to the other side and have it dissipate without actually acting on it. So even just distracting ourselves for 15 exactly. or 20 minutes. And, and would you recommend that for people experience, experiencing a craving or people experiencing kind of that heart hunger that we're talking about? Is it, is oh, it both, for know? sure. Absolutely. I think so. I, you know, I was also thinking as we were talking, this, this idea of the way that food almost becomes a taught soothing behavior, a, a, something like how we raised and, and these kinds of things. There's this notion, um, real estate agents, for example, will say, you know, if you're trying to sell your house, bake an apple pie and the smell, you know, brings forward people's emotional response to the home and all of this kind of stuff. Well, you know what? It's actually true. So neurologically, if you pretend this is my brain, it's shaped kind of like this. Here's my forehead here. This is the very core part down here is what we call the limbic system, which is where emotions and memory are laid down. And the nerves that go from our nose go directly to that limbic system without bypassing anything else, without being bypassed by anything else. So the sense of smell is so connected to emotion and to memory. And I think food has, it is somehow connected in that. Um, We don't, we don't really know, you know, exactly. It's, it's not to say that that's necessarily like the key, but to just sort of understand, wow, there are so many different ways that we are primed for this behavior. So be kind to ourselves that, that Mm -hmm. everything is kind of conspiring to, to make us eat emotionally. Yeah. And it feels good. It tastes good. All right. So I want to come back to that. And I do want to say, Sarah, I hope that was a helpful answer to you. And folks, if you would like to have your question answered on air, call us at 904-414-5827 and leave a message. We'd love to hear from you. Okay. So Anne, let's get really specific and actually walk through a situation that someone might find themselves in. And I'm not saying this is a situation I've experienced recently, but let's just say it's the end of the day. I'm Mm -hmm. tired. And I just suddenly find myself you know, bored and, and just like stressed and I'm overcome with the desire for potato chips. I know I'm not hungry. I've already eaten dinner. 
but I really want that salty, crunchy. I want those chips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what, what's the first thing I should do? Well, so I think the first thing is, okay, here I am. I'm sitting here and I'm at a choice point, right? So I can decide and either choice is completely legit. This is not illegal behavior. It's not self-harming-ish. So we can decide, well, yeah, heck yeah, I'm going to go for that right now. Mm-hmm. Or we can decide, but I usually feel really bad about myself afterwards. And I don't want to feel that way anymore. I don't want to be so self-critical and ashamed. I'm going to try to do something else. That's a choice point. Either way is fine. But to think that the behavior is something outside of our control is an unfair setup. We have control over what we choose to do. And sometimes it feels like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give in. It's going to be fun and I like it and it'll be fine. And other times, no, that's not a price I'm willing to pay tonight. So do you have any suggestions? Um, you know, let's say that I do, I do say, okay, I want those potato chips. You know, I, I haven't had them recently. This is just a moment. Do you have any suggestions to keep having some potato chips from turning into eating everything in the kitchen? Because I think that yes. happens. Yes. Sometimes what happens is people say, I'm not going to have the potato chips. And they eat around the potato chips and wind up doing much more eating than they needed to, right? Yes. Other... Other, or you could say, this is where this idea of mindfulness comes in, applying mindfulness to eating, deciding, you know what? Yeah, it's just kind of what I'm in the mood for. And I'm going to take a portion, whatever I decide is a portion, not necessarily what's on the nutrition facts, but a portion, that seems reasonable. It's not going to make me feel sick. It's not going to make me feel ashamed. It's just going to make me feel like I had some chips. And then it's time to say, and you know what? I'm allowing it. Now I'm going to eat them and I'm going to really taste them. And I'm going to say, God, you know, yeah, they're really crunchy and that tastes so good. Or they kind of went a little bad and they're a little mushy and I don't think I want those today, you know, but to really tune in to the experience, because again, we don't think of eating as a sensual experience, but it involves all of our senses and we can tune into it and really feel then like we're satisfied by it. And then if we eliminate the shame from it, it's an amount that was reasonable and I enjoyed it. There's no shame to it. Then it's over. And it was a positive experience as opposed to like a, yes. So we're going to talk about shame in a second. But folks, if there's a friend or family member who you think would benefit from hearing what Dr. Global Fabry is sharing with us tonight, please tag them in the comments or share this video on your page. You know, she is an expert and I know these are words of wisdom a lot of people could really use. So please help us spread this great information. All right. So let's extend this potato chip example a little more. Let's say I eat the chips, maybe a lot of them. I didn't, what you said, where I put them on a plate and was really mindful about them. But let's just say I kind of overdid it and I feel terrible about myself. Uh How do you encourage the people you work with to kind of put that behind them? And I I don't want to sound trite, but use that experience to learn. Like, yes. how, How can I take this experience and turn it into something positive to keep it from happening again? Well, okay. That's really important. So some people, they run what I call the same experiment over and over and over again. The chips didn't walk into the house on their own. They came because there was a decision made either by the person who does the grocery shopping or 
the person who's about to do the eating to bring these and purchase them, right? Mm-hmm. And so right at the purchase point is the question, okay, do I, re- do I really think I can handle these? Is this the volume that I want in my house? Is this the type of chip that I want in my house? Or is this a chip that I need to actually eat in a different setting, right? There's an initial question of, do we even want to do it? The experiment often goes like this, however. The experiment is often, today's going to be different. Today, I'm going to be able to buy the family size, big honking thing of Fritos, and I'll have a handful. Even though that's never worked in the past. Why would it end any differently? It's a setup. And, and with the expectation that today, self-discipline or willpower or whatever we would call it is going to rain down on me. Well, that's not fair. If this happens to be a particular food that you have shown yourself over and over that you really can't do it differently, then don't expect yourself to do it differently. Have some compassion and decide, okay, I don't want to set myself up that way. Okay. So you said several things at the beginning that I think are worth calling out. Mm. One, do I even want to bring them in the house? Two, do I want to bring them in in this size? Because it is true. Like, you know, the big bag of potato chips, it is hard. You know, you said it earlier, not necessarily the serving size on the package. You know, no, you know, it's easy to eat out of the bag. So like maybe a a smaller size and saying, okay, I'll let myself have a bag of chips. You know, Mm -hmm. that's a big difference. But do I want to have this food in a different setting? And for me, that's always a dessert thing like brownies. If they are here, I'm going to be thinking about them all the time. But if I have them when I go out, go to Starbucks and have, and it's a special occasion, it's a totally different ballpark. So do you encourage people to think through like, okay, these are my trigger foods. These are the foods that are challenging me. And how am I going to deal with them? Exactly. Because it's not that they're bad foods and they should be eliminated altogether. If we put them in that category, then you're setting up feelings of deprivation and that also can backfire, right? I mean, unless it's like a severe allergy or who knows why you can't eat it. Obviously, that's a whole different story. But if if this is just a, a food that you ought to be able to tolerate physically, then figure out how to do it if you feel like it's worth it. I used to work at Joslin Diabetes Center and I worked with a lot of dietitians. And one of the dietitians there, I, I always share the story because she's like born to the field. Like she, she's just, she's such a dietitian and she, you know, she thinks about food in a very particular way and all of this stuff and not in an eating disorder way whatsoever. Like, you know, just a very healthy, natural kind of thing. Exactly. And she decided that she loves chocolate. And she always wanted to have a little bit of chocolate after lunch. And she knew that there were certain kinds of chocolate that she could handle having in her desk and other kinds that she could not handle having in her desk. And it didn't make her like a better person or, you know, a stronger willed person or whatever. What it made her was a very mindful, clear thinking person who decided, I want this. It's totally legitimate for me to have. Let me see if I can do it. So that seems to me like the height of wisdom. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. That well. Very unusual person. Yeah. And preparing as well also. But you know, you said it earlier, it's not a self-compassionate act to set ourselves up to fail. Right. And my next question for you has to do with shame. Because I think one of the real challenges of emotional eating is we feel a lot of shame about it. We feel so like much I'm bad because of how, how I eat. 
So mm-hmm. when someone began to work with that emotion and, and, and change the way they talk to themselves? Well, I think having diabetes also makes it that much more complicated because not only do you have an emotional response after you've eaten whatever it might be, but you also have now data, a numerical response that some people perceive as judgment on them and on that behavior, right? Like, oh God, my blood sugar's in the 200s. Like, forget it. I'm, I can't do this at all. What is wrong with me? I have no control. Yes. And they get really twisted together. The, the, the way that the glucose values and the eating choices happen and, and then the addition of shame. So I think it's, it's very complicated. And I sometimes think the more complicated something is, the more a person needs some empathy and sort of softness in their approach to themselves. I 100% agree. You know, I think it's so easy to think like, if I'm just harder on myself, if I'm just meaner to myself, yeah, that's never worked. Back to your point of like, you know, let's no. we keep to run on the same experiment. Right. So how, if someone were to say to you, if I'm nice to myself, I'll never get up off the couch. My numbers will always be high. Talk to us about why that might not be the case. Well, because treating our bodies well is a form of being nice to ourselves. And when we feel better, when we feel the direct impact of that, it's a kindness as well. I mean, we're, I think there's this, there's this way that for some reason in our culture in particular, and I don't understand exactly why this would be, but we, we value hardness. We value discipline and, you know, it's, I, I don't know. Hardness is the perfect word. You're exactly we right. Just, we do. And like, you know, man up and da, da, da. And people speak so poorly to themselves. And I'm not saying like, you know, you, you, can't, you can't try to counteract that negative voice with something syrupy sweet that you don't believe. It, it has to be believable. It can't just be, no, you're wonderful. Huh? No, but... You know, something like, okay, you know, I'm doing the best I can. This was a hard day starting over tomorrow or I'm, I'm doing the best I can. Let's sit down and really analyze what could I have done differently? Because then you're now in an active problem solving mode as opposed to a beating yourself over the head mode. So a psychologist told us recently that um, shame, the feeling of shame actually prevents learning because it shuts shuts down the part of our brain that allows us to kind of learn from our mistakes, say exactly mm-hmm. what you were just asking, you know, how could I have done this differently? What was, where was the moment where the kind of the train went off the tracks? So I think that's exactly what you're saying, you know, like by being kind to ourselves, just saying, hey, I'm doing the best I can. Right. It's a new day. Let's let's analyze this with a fresh set of eyes and and also to to look at, you know, not only like where did the train go off the tracks, but also how did the train get back on the tracks and how long was the train on the tracks before it derailed? You know, that and each piece of that is a different kind of analysis that can be made, right? So like what was going right when you were eating in a healthier way and you were exercising? What were the various things that you did that helped facilitate that? And appreciating maybe it's great that we have tracks in the first place. Talks about, you know, like we, there's bright spots and landmines and we spend so much time looking at the landmines and not enough time looking at the spots. We're really- They both have things to teach. They both, both sides. Absolutely. And if there are times when you are doing behaviors that you want to be doing, what's happening there? You know, let's, let's look deeper. Right. 
rather than just focusing on the negative. I am curious, you, you made the point, diabetes is one of those conditions where we do see the impact of the choices we make and that can lead to even more judgment. Mm-hmm. Notice that um, people who have been on diets tend to be um, perhaps more prone to overindulge or emotionally eat? Is it is it kind of one of those all or nothing, like I'm going to be very restrictive and then I'm going to overindulge and go back and forth? Do you notice that as a phenomenon? Very black and white thinking can get set up, I think, by the diet mentality. So I'm either on it or I'm cheating. Yes. You know, versus I'm on it and I happen to have a Hershey's kiss. Yes. This big. Diets can be designed in such incredibly rigid ways that they're no longer really like eating. They're like science experiments. And that's just not how we live. And it's not how food should function. It's just, it's not. There's so many social, very positive aspects about sharing food that people miss out on if they're on this very, very rigid, you know, oh no, I can't do that kind of mindset. So, and one of the things that um, our diabetes dietitian, Melinda, advocates is um, the 80-20 rule. So not expecting ourselves to be perfect, kind of planning in treats. And what I'm hearing from you is that's really important if we want to kind of stay on the tracks. Absolutely. Because the problem with diets is diets typically have an end point as opposed to a lifestyle, which is what's required when we want to maintain health or want to maintain a weight loss that's been healthy for ourselves. So I like the 80-20 because I think about the flexibility that it affords people. One of the um, weight management experts we've spoken to suggests that people look at what lifestyle changes are probable for me? Anything's possible, <laughs> but right. probable that I'm going to actually be able to accomplish. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. All right, one more question about disordered eating, and that's about intuitive eating. Is intuitive eating an approach that you recommend to people who've struggled with an unhealthy relationship with food? And are there certain people for whom it works better than others? So intuitive eating is, is also sometimes referred to as mindful eating, which is, which is what I was... Um, which is the term I used, but they're really used interchangeably. And intuitive eating can be very difficult for people at the beginning of turning eating disorder behavior around. The notion is I can tune into my body, I can read my hunger signals, I can read my fullness cues, and I can respond with eating or not eating accordingly. And I can respond with eating or not eating any type of food I can use that approach across the board. I I think that is incredibly challenging. I think it's a great concept and I think aspects of it are very, very useful, but I think it's really hard. And I think we need to acknowledge that it's an incredibly complex concept and and not everybody does it and not everybody needs to do it. All right. So then as a follow-on question for that, you're a psychologist and I know you are very busy seeing patients and helping them deal with these issues. If someone is watching at home and they're trying to figure out whether seeing a therapist is the right choice for them, what questions would you suggest they ask themselves to kind of come to that decision? Whether they choose to be in therapy or whether they choose to just try to embark on a change on their own in some way, the first question is, what's the motivation? Why am I interested in doing this? Why now? And does my life work in such a way that change makes sense for now? So if I'm in the middle of three other different crises that I'm juggling and now I've decided I want to lose 50 pounds... Really? <laughs> <laughs> up to fail. Yeah, that's not a 
particularly reasonable thing. You know, so to try to figure out, okay, what's the timing? Well, if the motivation is, no, you know, enough is enough. I don't feel well. I'm concerned about my health. I've had some people say, you know, I have my first grandchild on the way. I want to be an active grandparent. I want to be around to see them get married or graduate college or what have you. These are very, very long range motivators that can be very sustaining to a person. So I, I, I look for those and I try to remind people and, and, and sort of build those into their consciousness. As far as whether or not to try therapy, I mean, I think the question is how much of an interest and willingness do you have to look at the emotional side of this and to delve into some of the pain that's associated with it? Um, and also, what kind of support are you going to have in your real world while you're doing that? Those are um, really good questions because I think a lot of times, as painful and shame-inducing as emotional eating can be, it is covering up really painful things that we experience that maybe we weren't able to deal with at the time. Sure. So we've had several people ask us how to deal with behaviors like weighing ourselves or you know checking blood sugar that has gotten a little obsessive. So those two behaviors, when they aren't you know necessarily compulsive, aren't bad for us. At least checking blood sugar isn't. And in fact, they can be important for good health. So I guess my first question is, how do you tell when it's a little out of balance? And B, how do you encourage someone to kind of get back into where it's more of a health-affirming choice rather than a compulsive behavior? I would define compulsive behavior as something that is actually getting in the way and that you can't shake. So if, let's say I'm a person who's weighing myself two or three times a day, or just, or even just day, doesn't need to be excessive, but weighing myself and each time the thought and the emotion connected to that number on the scale follows me the rest of the day and determines how my day goes and sets me up to feel really awful about myself, then I would argue that that's probably something that needs to be reconsidered. Um, similarly, with checking blood glucose all the time and feeling like you know, no matter what I do, I can't get these numbers right. I don't know what's going on. I'm just checking, checking, checking. That's somebody that needs some help navigating why are they doing that? And what are they wanting to see from that information? How is that data useful to them? So as you say that, it occurs to me, you know, we all eat emotionally to some degree or another. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a social thing. You know, we eat around the holidays. It's, it's connects family. That same question of, you know, is it getting in the way can really be applied to food in terms of like, you know, am I using food in a way that's making my life not maybe all it could be as opposed to like enhancing the quality of, of right. what I'm experiencing? Really, you know, if someone's saying like, you know, well, you know, maybe I check blood glucose a few times a day, but I use it as information rather than judgment, that's mm -hmm. kind of how they might assess that. I use it as a guidepost for what to do next. Okay, so I'm a little higher than I'd like to be, so I'm going to take a walk. Or I might choose not to have a snack right now or have an extra glass of water. What, you know, various things that, um, or if you're on insulin, be able to, you can really make a, you know, a dosing decision around that information. It's very important. But if it's just information to use to beat yourself up about, then it's not useful. All right, last question. If there was one thing that you could have every person with diabetes know about, about eating and food, what would it be? That eating and food are not the sole determinants of what your glucose 
is going to do and are not the sole determinants of what your A1C will be. I think that people with diabetes are taught the three usual suspects. So the three usual suspects are, what did you eat? How much did you move? And what kind of medicine did you take? Those are taught to people as though they are the things that are going to control, and I hate that word too, control blood glucose outcomes and A1C outcomes. They're taught that because those are the only actionable choices that we have. So it's not that those are the only determinants, but it's that they're the only ones we have any possibility of changing, right? There's this huge bag of tricks out here that's like, how how stressed were you? Are you <laughs> are you sick? What's going on hormonally? How well did you sleep? What you know? Did your boss just yell at you? Like there's umpteen different things. You know, if I had diabetes, I'd probably have high blood sugar right now because this is a little bit anxiety provoking. You know, it's just there's more to it than oh my god, I'm such a bad person and I don't have willpower. I'm so glad you said that. That was a little bit of a curveball we threw you, but I. I do think that is so important. And and I think people take so much like feeling it's my responsibility when they're as, I mean, I think it's Diatribe who has 30 different things that can influence blood glucose and, you know, and and food and exercise and medication. You're right. Those are the things that we can make choices about, but it is such a bigger picture. Oh my goodness. I mean, down to like, literally, if you're on injections or, or on pump therapy, like how close to a hair follicle did that needle go in? That could change absorption. How close to a fat cell? How close to a muscle cell? How close to scar tissue? We can't even see that. And yet we have a treatment that is good enough. It's actually quite sophisticated. But if we don't help people work with that treatment in an ongoing way, if we as healthcare professionals set them up for feeling like failures, we're in deep trouble. Exactly. So folks watching, be kind to yourself. You're doing great. You're doing the best you can. There's a lot that's not under your control, but but just by watching the show, you're obviously committed to managing diabetes. Oh yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us tonight. This has been such a helpful and encouraging show. So we, we really appreciate you being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure always. Thank you so much. 